turn with me, if you will, back to the book of Exodus, chapter 19. As we continue our study of Exodus, Exodus 19. <clears throat> In recent years, we've come to understand more fully uh, that we communicate not just by the words we say, but that we communicate sometimes even more powerfully by the way we say what we say. You know, the Lord has known that all along. We're talking, and we come to the point in our study of Exodus of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. But it's interesting that though these words are some of the most important things the Lord ever said, the way he said them is very instructive to us. So we're going to be on this uh, section of the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments this week and next. This week I want us to look at the way that God said these things, and then next week we'll look at what God actually said in the Ten Commandments. That means our text is going to be split up a little bit. We're going to look at uh, chapter 19, verses 9 to 25, and then we'll skip over the Ten Commandments that we'll come back to next week and uh, look at chapter 20, verse 18 through 21. So 19, 9 to 25, and then 18, uh, or 20, 18 to 21. Let me read it in your hearing. Exodus 19, 9. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds, a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourself for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in a fire. The smoke billowed up, and up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through 
to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Then Moses gave those, the Lord gave these commands, and then in verse 18 we pick up again. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And there we'll end our reading. When we study any text of the Bible, the most difficult thing for us to ascertain, I think, is the question, why did God put this here? What is his purpose? What is it that he wants us to learn? Well, this morning, it's a bit easy. Normally, that's not an easy question. But this morning, it's easy because bracketing this whole section of the giving of the Ten Commandments, the part we read plus the commandments in the middle, are two purpose statements. The first is in the very first verse, chapter 19, verse 9, where we read, The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that, there's the purpose statement, right? so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. God's making sure his people know the importance of Moses' role. That's his first purpose. And then the second purpose is at the very end, the other end of the bracket in chapter 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. God wants to make sure that he instills in his people the fear of God. So those two purposes bracket this whole section and tell us why God has done these things and said these things. And those two things, then those two statements, then give us kind of a, a lead to think of where we ought to go as uh, we think what this has to teach us. So those become... Uh, the basis of our first two points. But let's take the second one first, the, uh, the, the section at the end, and I think from that we learned this truth. Don't trifle with God's holiness. Don't trifle with God's holiness. I know we have kids taking notes, so let me give some definition of terms here. First, the word holy. We use the word holy in church all the time. For the sake of the kids, what does it mean to be holy? Holy means to be separate, to be set off from, especially for something pure, to be set off from something that's impure. God is perfectly pure. He's set off from everything, separated from everything. He's holy. And then the word trifle. Trifle means simply to treat someone or something as unimportant, to not take it seriously. But God's perfection, his separateness from everything sinful, is a serious matter. So don't trifle with God's holiness. I think that's what God is saying to his people in the way he speaks to them here. Later we read about his holiness in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees this vision of the Lord and surrounding his throne of the angels, crying nonstop, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. 
Now, in this account, we don't have any angels crying. We have an account of events. But in those events, I think this account says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Let me just show you why I think that, uh, some, some examples. First of all, uh, we see uh, God's holiness uh, brought forth when we see the preparation that he commands the people to make for his appearance. It's not just, hey, I'm going to show up. It's for three days, get ready. Consecrate yourself, another word for holy. Separate, cleanse, ready yourself. They washed all their clothes, symbol of the need for cleanness. They abstained from sexual relationships, a, a, a focus on, on the relationship to the Lord, not just to one another. And in these tangible acts of preparation for three days, they got ready. Why? Because God is going to appear, and we don't trifle with God's holiness. We see God's holiness also in the boundaries that he calls, calls, uh, or tells Moses to establish. In verse 12, God told Moses to set up a fence around the base of Mount Sinai, to kind of set up a police line around here with a little yellow marker maybe, I don't know. And nobody goes across that. Nobody steps foot on the other side of that. Nobody touches the mountain. No animal goes across that fence. If anyone crosses it or touches the foot of the mountain, he has to be put to death. Well, that sounds really awful to us. Alan Cole explains what's going on. He says, since the mountain was wholly rendered so by the descent of God there, then anything or anyone that touched it would also become holy or devoted to the Lord. For a living creature, that means sacrificed to the Lord. Or dead. <laughs> killed. In fact, it actually, God's holiness is even expressed more profoundly than that. For even if some animal or person crossed that line and had to be put to death, those who had to put them to death could not cross the line themselves. You can shoot them with arrows. You can throw stones at them to kill them. But you don't touch them, and you don't go across the line, or you too will die. God is making a point, a powerful point, that he is so holy that sinners are not allowed to come near him, not allowed to touch the mountain that he descends on. Don't trifle with my holiness, God says. Well, then there's another expression of God's holiness in this spectacular display, the events that took place that accompanied his appearance. When God was about to appear, there were several breathtaking events that displayed his majesty. The thunder roared. The lightning flashed. Fire and smoke covered this mountain. The earth shook violently. And out of nowhere, a trumpet, a ram's horn, began to sound. And it got louder and louder as if coming closer and closer. Now, all kinds of natural ex explanations have been given to that. Well, maybe they had just an unusually bad thunderstorm. Or maybe, maybe there's an extinct volcano over there somewhere. But uh, Dr. D uh, John Durham, who's a professor of Old Testament at Wake Forest, explains it the best. Listen to what he says. There is not the slightest reason to imagine some unusual thunderstorm or to look for an extinct volcano as a means of locating Mount Sinai. This 
storm and the fire imagery of verse 16 to 19 is one part of an attempt to describe the indescribable experience of the coming of Yahweh, the Lord. What does it look like if God arrives in his holiness? You can't explain it except to say it's like the mountain shaking and the, and the fire falling from heaven and smoke consuming us. It's indescribable. But these same kinds of things are used elsewhere to describe the Lord when he appears. One great uh, example of that is the word translated lightning flashes here is the same word that's used in Genesis 15 where it's translated a flaming torch. Remember where the Lord appeared after Abraham had set up with the animals all cut in half to walk through here and, and make a covenant with the Lord and then God puts Abraham to sleep over here and the Lord appears in a, as a flaming torch and walks through here and makes the covenant himself without Abraham's help. Thank you. An image of the Lord and his holiness and his glory. You see, all this pyrotechnic and seismic display was designed to say, in no uncertain terms, the Lord is here. And he is holy. 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 Holy is the Lord. But don't trifle with God's holiness. That's the point made at the end of this text that we read a minute ago. In verse 20 of chapter 20. God has come near to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now this is really an interesting kind of statement here about the fear of God. Actually Moses says, don't be afraid. God's just teaching you to fear the Lord. <laughs> Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? We probably all know someone who lives in constant fear of God's retribution hanging over their head. It's like a dark cloud in their life. It never goes away. No matter how hard they try, they can't come to any peace with it. Even some Christians experience this. Well, I didn't read my Bible much. I think God's against me. I, I, I miss church. I think God's out to get me. One of those people, you need to come to grips with God's grace. God does not want you to be afraid all the time. That's not how God wants us to live. The Lord Jesus has come in his love and his grace to us cast out fear. So we trust him. But having said that, frankly, we live in a time where there is no fear of the Lord. Where we've taken that to such an extreme that Everything about the Lord is taken for granted. We don't talk about the fear of the Lord. We speak casually, even flippantly, about God being our buddy. Any sense of his awesome holiness sounds like some prehistoric talk that we've outgrown. Reverence is not something we care much about. But Exodus 19 reminds us why we so desperately need God's, need God's grace extended to us in Jesus because he is majestic in his holiness and no one can stand before him. We must fear the Lord, not that we cower in servile fear. Jesus comes to cast out that kind of fear and give us peace. But we do not outgrow 
the sense of awesome reverence before the Lord. C.S. Lewis wrote, he is good, but he is not safe. Peter Enns puts it, we fear him because he's good, but we see his goodness because we fear him. All of which assumes that we have learned, don't trifle with God's holiness. Well, that's the first lesson we ought to learn here from the way God speaks. Let's back up to the beginning of the text again and see our second truth, which builds on that first one. The second truth is this. God has provided a mediator. God has provided a mediator. Now, in our country, we have this tremendous commitment to open access for everyone. It is rare anymore to find any organization that has a limited membership. Only certain kinds of people can come here. We believe in open access for everyone. In our government, we have sunshine laws. In fact, just one month ago, the Public Disclosure Act was passed into law in this state, requiring state and local agencies to improve public access to records and, and, and increasing penalties for them if they don't. You see, we have a right to full access. But not before God, you don't. Not before God. He is holy. Absolutely separate from holy. You have no right to access. To not step one foot into his presence. You must have a mediator that he approves. According to 19.9 here, that's the other reason God put on this display for these people as he gave them his law, so that they would understand that he only speaks through Moses and that they would trust Moses. Rather than thinking, well, I can approach God on my own, thank you. No, he only speaks through Moses. God authenticated Moses here. He let the people hear him speaking to Moses so that they would know they have to deal with Moses. He's God's mediator. Because the people had seen such a display of God's holiness, they understood their desperate need and they welcome Moses to be their mediator. We see that toward the end of our text over in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. We read, When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. They came to understand they had to have a mediator. And so we read of Moses, even in the New Testament, Galatians 3, the law was put into effect through a mediator. And ever since, it's been called the law of Moses. For only through the mediation of Moses did people have any knowledge of the law of God. 
Now the truth is it didn't take those people long to forget that. In fact, Moses' own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, led a revolt not long later, not, not, not too long later. Um, we read about it in Numbers 12. They suddenly said, wait a minute. Has the Lord only spoken through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? These would be people that would fit well in our culture, wouldn't they? I know as much about it as anybody else. I know as much as Moses. What do you mean God only speaks to Moses? The Lord chastened them severely for that. Plagued Miriam with leprosy. But listen to the Lord's response before he chastened them. The Lord said, listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions, I speak him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face. Clearly, not in riddles. He sees the very form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? No wonder Moses has been revered even to this day among the Jews. He was God's chosen mediator. But folks, as great as Moses was, and as great as the law of Moses was, that was never the end of God's plan. According to Deuteronomy 18, Moses was a forerunner of an even greater mediator who was to come. Moses himself talks about it in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, you must listen to him. For this is what you ask of the Lord, your God, at Horeb, or Sinai, on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see his great fire anymore, or we will die. Well, the Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. I mean, we might say, well, now, who's Moses talking about? Is he talking about Joshua? Is he talking about one of the prophets to come? Well, the Spirit of God tells us in Acts 3, he's talking about Jesus. As Hebrews 9 says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. In fact, Jesus so far surpasses the mediatorial office of Moses that the Apostle Paul writes, there is one God and there's only one mediator between God and men. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. What was demonstrated so powerfully in the time of Moses and the giving of the law has now come to infinitely greater fulfillment in the appearance of the perfect mediator, the God-man, Jesus. Well, it's still true that we must have a mediator chosen by God if we're going to approach him. But Jesus has become that perfect mediator. He is the Son of God. He knows the Father. He is the Son of Man. He acts as our representative head. For us, he suffered and died and rose 
and now ascended that we might be reconciled to God. And there he is in God's presence interceding for us, being our advocate and sending us his spirit to draw us to God. Through him, and only through him, we have access to the Father. An access that they never could know in Moses' day. John Newton captured some of the wonder of Jesus, our mediator, in his familiar hymn, Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us near to God. Why would you ever want to try to approach God on your own? You can no more approach him in his holiness than those people standing on Mount Sinai. But they didn't need to. God gave them a mediator in Moses. And this morning I declare to you, you don't need to either because God has given us a mediator in the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone perfectly represents God to us and brings us to God. God has provided his mediator. So trust him. As we study this account of God's people gathered before Mount Sinai, it just drips with signs and symbols of greater things to come, things which have now become reality in Jesus. Not surprisingly, the New Testament often contrasts that situation at at Mount Sinai with our situation now in Christ. One of the greatest of those comparisons is found in Hebrews 12, where the Spirit contrasts Jews standing before this mountain, Mount Sinai, where God appeared to them and spoke to them, and and, and us as Christians standing before the heavenly Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem, where God, from which God speaks to us in Jesus and by his Spirit. Let me just close by reading that comparison, which is a little lengthy, but out of Hebrews 12. There we read, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, to a voice speaking words that those who heard it beg, that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If you even touch this mountain, you will die. The sight of it was so terrifying to Moses that he said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it then that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. 
But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removal of that which can be shaken, created thing, so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Same thing we hear in Exodus 19. Don't trifle with God's holiness. God has provided a mediator. Not just Moses, now Jesus. So trust him. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. May we know how to see it as a whole. And to not just get lost in this verse or that, but to see your great unfolding plan and how at every point it points us to Jesus, who is our very life, in whom we have hope, in whom we have forgiveness, eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for the message of this text, which also points us to such a great mediator. Lord, may we worship you in reverence and fear, trusting this Jesus who brings us to God. You take a seed of your word that's planted in our hearts and grow it, we pray, until it changes us and produces fruit for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.